go outside. <laughs> That's literally, <laughs> it's simple. Go outside, go outside often, go outside at different types of day, go outside whatever the weather and look around. The Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Actual Outdoors. They help build beautiful brands that highlight the approachable and authentic parts of outdoor recreation. Said simply, they keep it real. Learn more at actualoutdoors.com. This is the Life in Motion audio experience, a podcast about travel, action sports, culture, and more. What's up and welcome to episode 126 of Life in Motion. I've got Jade with me from the Outdoor Learning Store. They provide easy access to outdoor learning equipment and resources to schools and organizations. I'm excited to hear her story and also why it's so important for the growth of outdoor education. Jade, thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure. Yes, yes. I'm excited. And I love how kind of mutual uh, connections uh, with Lauren, I believe, was the one who helped us get connected. So I love how that kind of works out. So, But before we get... Um, and kind of ever into everything that you're doing um, with or what the outdoor learning store is kind of all about. Let's uh, let's take a break and kind of talk about, um, you know, who you are, where you grew up, where you're from, hobbies you had, kind of what led you in this path and kind of this passion in the first place. Um, of course, it's it's quite circuitous. It's quite a it's quite a circle, but I'll I'll try and be brief. Um, I have what we call. I live in the interior of British Columbia in a beautiful sort of uh, mountain town called Revelstoke, and I have what we call a classic Revelstoke accent, which means uh, I'm not from here. Um, <laughs> and we, yeah, you know, the we live in a community that has this really diverse population um, of people who've come from across Canada and across the world uh, to live in this place, either for, you know, work or recreational desires and needs. Um, but I'm originally from the UK. I was born in England and um, I grew up, I tell people I'm from London because, you know, that's what we do. We just pick the closest sort of urban center and direct people there. Um, but I grew up in a, in a, I mean, you know, our version of a province called Essex, um, which is sort of where the, the Thames River, it, it's the estuary of where it empties out into the North Sea. So I actually grew up with a lot of green space around, sort of these very like traditional rolling green hills and, and deciduous forests. Um, and I, I spent a fair bit of time outside and I, I guess I was just on the edge of that sort of population or age group where we were just allowed to go out and it was like go forth you know go ride your bikes go adventure and come back for dinner um which i think is you know happening potentially less in some places now yeah and um that's where i started so so i guess like what uh, you know, what was it about it i guess was it just like when you when you started you know as a kid was it just like okay yeah mom and dad or whoever you know they're saying just go out and start exploring and that's kind of where it began or like um, I guess, was that the, uh, the lure to it? Oh gosh. So yes, definitely. I think, um, my parents are very different, but both of them love to have adventures in their own way. Um, but we were always going out. Um, we had this sort of community forest just around the corner for us. It's called, um, Thorndon Country Park. 
and um, we would go and ride our bikes amongst it. I mean, it's predominantly sort of oak and maple in there. And um, it's an old country house that they sort of repurposed for, for people to use. And so we were, we would always go and ride our bikes there. Um, there was another, it's a, a sort of what we call a holiday park um, group called Center Parks. And these are sort of like you go and stay in these little um, bungalow type oh flat roofed cabins in the forest and they're now they're all over Europe and it's not just in the UK and you know both of my parents my mum lived on a farm for a certain amount they used to swim in the pond and she said you would come out just like covered in leeches (laughs) and they would just pick them off you know and just be like cool cool that's fine you know um but neither of um, them had access uh, to the kind of freedoms of quality of life of recreation uh that i did they were both um you know effectively lived a life of poverty at a certain point and so they came to their opportunities uh later on in life and they wanted us to have uh, myself my two brothers as much access to that as possible and um they neither of them got to travel until they were much older so um my dad was pretty obsessed with us getting out into the world. So we lived, uh, yeah, within about sort of an hour's drive of the coast and they built something, uh, the French call it the Tunnel sous la Manche uh, or the Channel Tunnel that goes underneath England, a big, beautiful train that you can drive onto uh, that goes all the way to France. And so my dad would pick us up from school on a Friday, mum in the front, three of us in the back, and we would drive to Europe, to the continent. And we would go to France or Belgium, uh, or sometimes even into Holland or uh, the Netherlands or Germany, and go to these centre parks places. Like it was almost, I don't know. I feel like we were VIPs because they're like, "Oh, it's you people. <laughs> You're here all the time." Um, and these were these, yeah, these beautiful places. They had these swimming pools with with uh, water slides, but it was all. It it wasn't. It didn't feel crazy fancy, you know. It's not like this wild resort it was it, they tried to keep the spaces as natural as possible um the, you know there were climbing walls and, and all kinds of things and that was that was the entry point to to this kind of life where it was like ah there is spending time outside is wonderful that's awesome and i uh yeah I, being able to kind of hop in the car and go under a tunnel you know to the next uh <laughs> you know europe over uh, that's that's pretty that's pretty awesome so, so obviously, you know, there's, there's some kind of family memories that went along with that, which is great. And then your kind of love for kind of being outdoors grew. So, so kind of what was that like as you, you know, began to get um, older in, in university or any, anything like that? Totally. So as I said, we had these little cabins, but I'd never been camping. We were, we were not tent people. We had, that had never been a part of our sort of, um, our makeup as a family and then I went to university um, and I should state that I was very very fortunate to travel with my father to um, the Grand Canyon National Park in the States and I was going to do English literature at university I'm passionate about writing I'm writing all the time I love words Um, and it, it was tossing up because I really wanted to do science as well. And I had this sort of conflict within me. And I went to the Grand Canyon with my dad and we were sat on the rim at sunrise. And it's back when they allowed you right to the edge. Um, <laughs> and I, I <laughs> things have changed. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I, I looked at this 
this this this huge wrench where the earth of you know this deep deep gully just seemingly endless in all directions I just wanted to know I wanted to know how it got there I wanted to to understand how this earth that we're on these processes over these huge time scales and spatial scales could occur and so I went to university instead and did a physical geography degree and and whilst there I got the opportunity to travel we went to Iceland in my first year to learn about glaciers and to spend time doing research on glaciers it was a small group of us and that was my first time that I camped. And I was like, oh, where is the where is the hotel? <laughs> um, you know, it was an <laughs> oh, oh, sleeping bag. Right. Okay. Um it, I was, yeah, slightly discombobulated. And I, it took me it took from 18, actually, when I met my now husband uh, on that university course. Um it took me sort of learning from him and his understanding of being outside in a much more sort of um, holistic way to really dive into it. And now we camp, you know, we spend as much time as we can. We winter camp, we go up ski touring and sleep outside when it's, you know, up in the mountains. And um, it just, it grew, it grew and grew in me. The more time I spend outside, the more deeply connected to place I feel, the more connected to almost my evolutionary biology I feel and um that has just led into the work I do and and the place I am now that's awesome so my uh side story my, my wife and I have been to um Iceland for uh, I don't know it might have been four days or what it was a part of a, a larger trip that we went to Europe as well but we did stay in a yurt there one night um so I, I can say I, I did that with a it was really funny we uh the the car that we rented there to be uh uh economically or financially responsible was a little fiat um little two-door you know go-kart <laughs> <laughs> and i think the the yurt that we stayed in was um was maybe bigger than that uh, and it was i don't even know if it was really mm -hmm. a yurt it was just an oversized uh tent but anyways just wanted to throw that out there mm -hmm. but it's it's cool how kind of that prog <laughs> that progression um you know, from, from, you know, coming to the States, seeing that, and then kind of, you know, leading that into, to what you're doing. So after, after you, um, I guess graduated, like what, what were the next, those, those next kind of progressions in the journey? And just to touch on what you said, like, I think one of the biggest things that has influenced the way I, I teach now or that I share, um, professional development with teachers is that I was not always comfortable outside. I, had strong discomfort with uh, being too cold or being too hot or uh, not having the right gear and feeling uncomfortable or scared of being in big environments so that that whole thing has been a massive learning journey through that but as I uh, left university I um, was all queued up I was going to go straight back to Queen Mary University of London um, most phenomenal um, climatology and glaciology department uh, and I was going to go back and do a PhD. Uh, um, my uh, husband, Alex, and I were, were, wanted to go travel. And, and I remember, you know, one of my sort of thesis advisors said to me, um, Jay, do you know that if you go traveling, you will never come back? He said, you will get sucked out <laughs> into the world and you will never come back to research. And I strongly recommend that you do not do this. Um and I did. And <laughs> it was exactly as he said. Um, 
I basically went and traveled for seven or so years. Um, so some time through Southeast Asia and, and sort of learning about different um, climates for one and environments there. And then a few years in Australia and New Zealand, um, basically going through all the, the sort of Commonwealth. And um, it was whilst I was there and, and quite honestly was, you know, just traveling. I worked in hospitality. I was running restaurants. My husband was chefing and we were um, mountain biking, rock climbing, skiing, uh, weightboarding, just living life, um, you know, very gratefully. Huge opportunities that we were afforded and able to do that um, because of, you know, easy access to visas and the fact that we all speak the same language. You know, I am very fortunate to have had minimal barriers uh, to access in, in all things in my life. Um, and then whilst there, I, I was kind of starting to feel sad that I wasn't doing anything, um, for me, utilizing my science brain. And I tried to go and work in the mining industry and was like, Oh no, no, cannot do this. Um, and so I was like, okay, how can I do this? So I reached out to one of the local schools and said, hi, look, this is my degree. This is my expertise. Do you, you know, do you have some students that are struggling or, uh, you know, a homework club that could do with some support or I could come in and just give like a, a short workshop. Um, so my speciality was uh, micropaleontology. Um, so, um, and paleoclimatology, paleo meaning old and climate meaning climate. And so <sighs> using these, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, um, these microscopic bivalve crustaceans that live in every water uh, body on earth from the littlest puddle to the greatest ocean and using them as a climate proxy. So uh, looking at the sort of um, fossil record, they, these, these microscopic uh, crustaceans are called ostracods. Okay. And we think they're one of the sort of seven key pillars of evolution because they've been around for sort of hundreds of millions of years. But basically they live in, sorry, this is full tangent, full nerd out coming, um, brace yourselves. Um, <laughs> so these little shelled animals, you need a microscope to see them uh, in detail, live in really um, tiny sort of ecological niches. So um, Limnocythery, for example, will only live um, within fast flowing fresh water that's three to six degrees Celsius. Um, and other ones will only live in very calm water that's brackish or a mixture of fresh water and saline or only in ocean water. And um, so when and they're, they're extant, so many of them continue to live on today. So when we find them in modern living situations, in particular environments, and then we find them in the fossil record going back hundreds of millions of years sometimes, we can say, ah, well, if this species was alive then, and got buried at this sort of side of this lake, then we can, alongside other sort of clim climatic proxies like pollen records and um, uranium series dating or carbon dating, we can kind of extrapolate that back then it looks kind of much like it does look now. Um, so I was just deeply passionate about sharing this and I was sort of building a bit of a sort of rock and fossil collection, which was extremely heavy when you're carrying everything you own in a backpack. <laughs> um, but I, I started going into schools and I did this voluntarily at first. I just would turn up and I'd say, hey, and then one teacher was like, hey, I'm teaching a geography class. I mean, I, it, it's a physical geography class for grade 10s. 
I have no idea. I'm a human geographer. I'm a social studies teacher and, and, you know, I've never taught this before. And I went in and did a whole thing on plate tectonics and, um, and volcanoes. And it, I just started there. And then I traveled as I was doing this, I just would go into schools and connect with teachers and connect with students and start designing field trips or supporting teachers in, in how they could take their learning outside. And, and now it's sort of 15 years later and I'm with the outdoor learning store, um, as our outreach and events manager running online workshops for, you know, where thousands of teachers from across North America have signed up and we're teaching them how to take their learning outside. That's, that's amazing. That's cool. Like, you know, having <laughs> the idea to like walk around or not, you know, walk around, but, you know, carry these, these different rocks and, and things and, and explain like what's going on. <clears throat> I have a, a three-year-old, he's my oldest. Um, and he's super, I, I feel like every three-year-old boy at some point, uh, just falls in love with dinosaurs and rocks and volcanoes. Mm. Uh, that's where we're mm -hmm. at very much right now. Um, so like even at a young age, I'm sure he would, he would enjoy that a lot. So and it's cool kind of the openness we, from the from the teachers to like, hey, yeah, come in and, and let's let's you know teach these students about that. And totally. And actually, um, so my husband's dad is a is a principal or in fact a principal sort of, of a school trust at that time of like many schools. And when we graduated, um, my husband went to work as an educational assistant supporting in the classrooms for students who had diverse needs. And I came in and did these uh, little one offs. Um, and that started before I traveled. And it was really interesting to me, um, you know, from being in the UK and then Australia, New Zealand, I did a bit in Norway and, and France and now in Canada, like how different um, the openness of the school system is to oh, yeah. external um, sort of influences or people coming in. And there I had an in and I had this in the UK, I had this person who could vouch for me or whatever. But here I am amazed at how open they are to um, wisdom and knowledge in all different forms. And, I, and that I'm incredibly proud to connect and get to live in a country uh, like Canada because they're um, and different school districts are different or, um, and school boards, but here there's just this great openness of what is your skill and what do you have and how can we work with that in order to give our students the most well-rounded um, opportunities they can and when I got to Canada um, I bumped into um, a lady called Mia who was um, the Wild Voices program manager so Wild Voices is um a program by the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM, and that is the overarching nonprofit umbrella that the Outdoor Learning Store um, is a part of. Uh, we started in the Columbia Basin, and now we've just kind of spread our, our roots out and wide and our branches. Um, but we were talking about things, and she said, oh, we have this, this program, it's called Wild Voices, and what we get is these community educators. So you write a program based on your skill set, your knowledge, your expertise, and then we have this beautiful system where teachers can book you and you go into the schools. And it was like, oh, I thought, and you pay people? You pay people to do this for a decade? I've just been doing this, you know, <laughs> just for fun. Um, and it was like mind-blowing. Um and she said, yes. And so that's where I started. I did that for two years. I would go in and I, I, I'm i in Revel Stoke. And so my program is Stoked on Science. Um, love it. I also do a different couple of things that, yeah, you know, love a play on <laughs> words. Um, 
on, you know, geography type things, the interconnectedness of, of different earth cycles. That's a big one for me. Um, and it started there. And then I sort of came into the into the organization and am very happily ensconced within it now. That's awesome. And that's, that's what I was going to ask. The next question is kind of how did the initial kind of connection of of you, you working with outdoor, the outdoor learning store kind of come about. And then I guess, and, and also is a good opportunity to kind of explain, you know, what, what it is and, and everything is as well. Absolutely. So yes, the outdoor learning store is only a couple of years old, right? It seems weird. It feels like it's always been there and it's been a part, but, um, before the, the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network or CBEAN, um, was really, uh, just a network, uh, providing uh, professional development op- opportunities. And this is pre-COVID, so everything's just like in-person workshops that move across the basin. Uh, we provided um, resources for teachers to access funding, to get equipment or access to training for their teachers. Um, it was a place that um, provided an opportunity for teachers to connect with other like-minded people and, and build each other up. And then, you know, we were talking about barriers. Everybody saw us, we're always trying to think, like, what are the barriers to access? And, you know, the science, the research, the peer-reviewed research is in. There's no ambiguity about it now. And the the body of research is just growing with every day. And um, that outdoor learning it supports physical, emotional, mental, and academic well-being uh, of students, but also supports um, physical, emotional, mental health of teachers. Okay, we were born into the nature. We are nature. We are not separate from it. And thus, you know, when we are distanced from it, um, Richard Louvre, in his you know seminal book um, about it, coined the term nature deficit disorder in two thousand and five. Um, and it's, it's that we are, we are at a deficit when we are inside all the time, um, not connecting, not breathing, being outside, you know, walking in trees for 30 minutes reduces your levels of cortisol, the stress hormone in the body, it increases oxytocin, which is the effectively the, the love uh, hormone that we have that produces calmness and well-being. And so we just we've always known that we needed to to get students outside more um and you know silver lining of the pandemic is that that is now being more widely adopted because that was the only place they could take their masks off that was the only place that um you know it felt safer it was easier to get distance between people um and so we were looking at barriers and we were thinking about outdoor learning equipment and resources now spoiler alert the reality is when you go outside, you don't actually need anything. You don't have to have a clipboard and you don't need to have, uh, you know, printed resources. You just have to go out. But once you've done that, what we started to learn is that in order to take the curriculum, which is what all of our teachers need to adhere to, in order to take the curriculum outside, that we wanted teachers or educators to, or school administration to have access to tools and resources that would make that as easy as possible. So children don't like to have um, to get cold and wet. And if you're going to spend time outside um, and sitting and doing anything, having a sit pad, a little foamy, 
it just makes a world of difference. If they feel like able to sit like that, and a lot of a lot of kids don't like to get muddy and wet you know it's it and that's something we work on as part of that process of being out there is getting used to it like I had to um but having those equipment providing teachers with um resources books that they can help to frame their their lessons with um but then also offering professional learning development to support it the research also states that just giving people like a one-off workshop or a one-off resource uh, doesn't actually work to change their learning practice and what we want to do is so deeply embed outdoor learning into every single teacher's toolkit where it is where it's standard where it is of course we're going outside today of course we're going to do our morning walk of course we're going to go and check on our tree and see what seasonal changes are happening of course we're going to think about math in relation to the number of edges on leaves or uh, the different spaces between trees and so the outdoor learning store us not having being able to find any easy access to this grew um, as this social enterprise. We're a charitable nonprofit. All proceeds go back to outdoor learning nonprofit programs and initiatives. We started to use that network to ask people, what do you need? What what would make things easier? We, you know, we surveyed, we connected. And, you know, firstly, we have a partnership of over 50 partners, um, you know, people like Take Me Outside who have all these beautiful initiatives and resources available, including the research to share with your admin if they're perhaps not supportive um, about why learning outside is so good for you. Um, And then I I could go on and on and on, but all (laughs) of these different, (laughs) I can't name them all, I'm sorry. Um, But all of these partnerships and these different perspectives came into saying, this is what we need. And so we have tools and equipment like clipboards, which are very handy if you want to go outside and you actually need to use writing implements and sit pads and binoculars to more pedagogical books or storybooks with a strong emphasis on indigenous learning resources as well. And we basically wanted to build this one-stop shop for outdoor learning um, that everything is as ethically and locally produced as possible, where all of the packaging is recycled, where you know that every dollar spent goes back into supporting, uh, getting more kids outside for learning. And that's what sort of happened. And it started very small and then it has grown, you know, quite significantly. And now I I get to work full time with them as a result of that, which I'm extremely (laughs) honored to do. That's no, that's amazing. And, and how you're, how you're taking, you know, creating those connections with the outdoors to make it n- not seem more than it is, but, you know, make, you know, kind of taking those classroom examples and applying it to that, to create those kind of more intimate, I guess, connections with, with the outdoors, right? Yes. Okay. So I'll sort of, um, our ethos, the the center of this is is place-based learning. So this is learning about your place, the things within it. What environment do you live in? Why is your climate like it is? What are the cultural and historical practices that are unique to your place? If it's mountains, it's different to grasslands. If you live east coast, it's different to west coast. And it's looking at all of those things. So there's 
um, a piece of research, maybe I should send you a list of resources. Um, it's a piece of research that talks about really before children at the age of 12 was the average, they actually can't quite grasp spatial scales. So you could talk about the Amazonian rainforest or you could talk about, um, you know, tsunamis in, in Asia, but it doesn't quite click because they don't have an understanding, even those who've been on aeroplanes or have traveled, really of how that connects to them. But what they do understand is the shape of that funny looking bit of that birch tree that's in <laughs> the schoolyard. Or the fact that in that one corner uh, of the playground, there is um, a particular type of grass breaking through the cracks. And we always see little blue butterflies there in spring. Or the sound of the chickadee calling where I am. Where I am in Revelstoke, um, this is the traditional territories of the Snikest people, um, the land of the bull trout. So we can learn about the bull trout in the river and their responsibility as an apex predator to keep the rest of the ecosystem in check and what happens when the bull trout's taken out and how it disrupts everything. For the Tanaha people who've also sort of loved and stewarded this land and utilized it for, for hunting and fishing over millennia, along with the Okanagan silks and the Shkretmuk people, this is the, the land of the chickadee, the Mishkakas, and I live next to the Columbia River, the, the Mishkakas River. And almost every single day of my life here, I hear a chickadee and their calls change. You know, in the, in the spring when they're calling for mates, they call, sweetie, sweetie. And in the winter, they, they call chickadee-dee-dee. And the more Ds that you hear at the end of their call, it's the more warning that they're sharing. Really? And like, yeah, so it's, and honestly, don't get me started on chickadees. Chickadees <laughs> have one of the largest, the largest evidences of neuroplasticity of any animal that has ever been studied. So in the fall, um, they will hide somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 seeds in different places um, in order to avoid them being stolen by other, other birds and other animals. In order to remember that, they will grow the number of neural pathways in their brains by up to 60%, 60% increase in the size of their brain just for winter so they can remember where their stashes are and then it shrinks back down in the spring. This <laughs> tiny little bird that's the size of your fist, how radical is that? I mean, it's so cool. So we can do that. I can look at that bird. We can sit quietly for a moment in a sit spot listening to the sounds of insects rustling through grass, listening to the sounds of leaves blowing through trees and the sound of the chickadee calling and see that whether that call changes, that chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dee changes to a chickadee-dee once we all stop and settle down into the space. And then we can run around like mad people and, and make lots of noise and, and, and scream and shout, but there's historically... Outdoor learning has been physical education, of which is an incredible part. It definitely is one of the key things that we have to combat the obesity ep epidemic. But outdoor learning is not a break from learning. Outdoor learning is a classroom of limitless possibilities. It is a place of imagination. It is a place of connection. And that's 
what we hope that our resources and tools and the professional learning that comes alongside them um, enables people to see. Yeah, no, that that's that's amazing. Um, you know, I <laughs> I wish in the winter uh, I could get my brain to uh, expand for or, or grow sixty percent. Yeah, I may be useful. <laughs> no, but uh, no, and it's cool to be able to make those connections and still like enjoy it, and then also understanding you know the differences in in age groups of how they interact with different things, just as as they're developing on their own, but to kind of adapt to that. So like obviously being only, you know, I guess two years in being official, I should say, where kind of where is everything sort of going as as you all continue to grow? Well, one of the greatest things we're seeing, um, and this was always a, a, a barrier to longevity for the success of projects, is that you would have, for example, one really inspired, passionate teacher in a school and they would spearhead outdoor learning or they would spearhead prep time being spent outside or something like that and then they would move on and all of that passion and all of that energy would disappear or you have a really um, powerful and um, excited uh, administrator who wants to take outdoor learning who believes in it who wants to have kids outside and you get a teacher population who are overwhelmed exhausted don't know how to plan their lessons for outside and it feels like extra work. So what we've tried to do is create this, this, this space for communication and networking that enables both sides of that to come together and say, here's where your support is. Here's where um, if that person leaves, you can find new resources that will help you carry their torch. Or Hey, school system administrators, here's a bunch of different outdoor learning kits that you can purchase, one for each class, that have all of the equipment and resources they need to get started. And you can share this with them and then point them to our website where every one of our free online workshops that interviews or has the authors or producers of this work sharing directly with you you can point them to that and they can say, aha, I get it. I can do this. Or you can go to our website, to our partners and supporters page and find those 50 partners and say, ah, okay, I'm in Quebec. Um, I'm a Francophone. Ah, okay, I can go to Nature Action Quebec and find their incredible uh, video series on climate change that is geared at students um, that is accessible, that is optimistic, and in their language. We're now very fortunate um, to have gone south of the border and are connecting in with uh, different US organizations, primarily through our relationship with the NAAAE, the North American Association for Environmental Education. It's a huge country um, with hugely diverse landscapes and learning opportunities. And we're connecting in with them and saying, how can we support you? How can we support your small conferences? How can we connect you with other uh, presenters or knowledge keepers close to you where you can build your practice and then share that back? And so, yes, we're just trying to build a repertoire of tools and equipment and resources where people can say, aha, this is what I need. And they can come to one place. And for example, 
We don't have 27 different magnifier, bug magnifiers. We tested a bunch. We found the best one that's the most ergonomic. It's ethically produced. It lasts forever. It doesn't scratch easily. It's on a breakaway lanyard so nobody's getting strangled. It's, um, it's the one. That's the one you need, you know, and we will, we will have it for you. And then we also, you know, have a list of here's how to get funding. Say you're in a place where you do not have the support of your financial team. Here's how you can get access to funding where you are so that you can take your own initiative on this. So we're trying to come to bottom up, top down, and everything in between, this holistic sphere of, of what do you need? We want to support you. And if people do go to the outdoorlearningstore.com and don't find what they need, then they can uh, ask us and we will find it for you because we have these beautiful relationships with our suppliers now and suppliers that we know care about the way in which things are used and created. And then people can come in and, and we can help them. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, you know, especially kind of limiting those barriers for everybody, especially when you're looking at a administrative versus, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that a teacher relationship. Uh, my, my wife's an art teacher. Um, so I do know, you know, sometimes when, the admin is asking them to do something. It's not always um, framed in the right way where it makes it uh, easier, or less daunting for the teacher when really it is. So so you kind of being able to ha- be that resource really um, sounds like really kind of helps with that process and and, you know, fulfill the mission of, of getting the, the kids outdoors to kind of learn and explore in that sense. Totally. And if you look at a subject like art, for example, you know, we have a bunch of books that, um, you know, the big book of nature activities. We've got uh, the walking curriculum by Gillian Judson, who's a professor in imaginative uh, education, which is really um, about the science of the fact that if you if your imagination is tickled, if, if you are awakened in some way while you're learning, you remember it. And um, then accompanying her book, um, Adele Kantz made this beautiful book called Playing in the Muck and Other Arty Stuff. And it's all these, it's just a really small book of um, cool art activities that you can do uh, connected to these walks. So we want outdoor learning to be inclusive. Okay. So again, if you can't afford all of the resources um, and, or if, you know, funding is not available and you've tried everything, to go out and be inspired by, um, for example, there's a he's a British artist and ephemeral seasonal nature sculptor called Andy Goldsworthy. We ran a workshop on uh, his work a while back. Is you know you use leaves to make your sculpture. You use natural found objects. Um, you don't need a notepad and watercolor paints and paintbrushes. You just go out there and use the materials that exist. What is a resource? Is it something we actually have to take or is it something we can just borrow for a moment and make this beautiful thing and then leave it out in the nature? So I think we hope that outdoor learning is a great equalizer. If in my direct experience as a community educator going into classrooms and working with kids and uh, working with them as well in recreational settings, where I always sneak some learning in, um, (laughs) they, you know, we have a lot of uh, neurodiverse children and those that sitting in a classroom very still, very quietly is extremely difficult. It takes every bit of energy to obey those rules. But outside these quote unquote 
you know, what are seen sometimes as disruptive students, the students that interrupt, the students that can't sit still, which, by the way, I was one of. <laughs> you take them outside and they are the leaders. Yeah. They have the space to move. You don't see fidgeting in the open outdoors unless it doesn't have to be mountains and lakes and streams. It could just be the playground. Noises don't bounce off of walls and magnify and stress people's sensories, sensory systems. So these places, it becomes a great equalizer for students. You can have loud spaces. You can have quiet spaces. And it all just means that there's something for everyone. I love classrooms. I love being in a classroom. But it is not for everybody. And so the more time we can spend outside, the more we can create space for every kind of learner uh, to succeed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's great kind of how you, you know, create those connections that way. And so I think that kind of brings me to the question I always like to ask our guest is kind of one piece of advice for our listeners. And I think that kind of the interesting perspective, you know, you work with everybody from admins to teachers to children themselves but I'm going to kind of direct this towards the kids. So like us, uh, for those that, that do have kids themselves, like myself, what would your piece of advice be to kind of keep feeding the kids curiosity when it comes to exploring the outdoors, learning more, and also kind of looking at it in the different perspectives and different ways that you all are, are teaching them now? Go outside. <laughs> that's literally <laughs> it's simple go outside go outside often go outside at different types of day go outside whatever the weather and look around there is a book uh, called natural curiosity um indigenous perspectives in environmental learning um that literally dives deep into why you should do this and and gives examples and case studies and research and but but realistically just have them connect what we connect to what we care about we will protect and we they are integral for the for the well-being of our planet right the next generation so and for our species the planet will actually be fine the planet for billions of years has cycled through you know extinctions and and mass devastation events but humans you know, will it be pleasant for us to live here? We need them to care. And so just go out, show them the sticky little things on the bottoms of leaves and teach them not to be grossed out by that. Go and look for mushrooms and teach them or um, spend time understanding about the fact that underneath the ground is is thousands of kilometers of network of communication lines and that those mycelium are communicating needs of the trees but you don't have to have that knowledge you can just go outside that is my piece of advice you know it's sometimes uh, the simpler way is the best way so to that point where can people find you online um, to learn more about what you're doing if they're a teacher or admin as well you know to kind of get those resources uh, to kind of build it in with what they're doing so it's outdoorlearningstore.com and you'll find our store on there if you're a school or organization you can do um, purchase orders or as an individual you can do it and know again that we are a charitable nonprofit. everything we make goes back into developing new resources professional development opportunities um, and connecting more people to outdoor learning awesome well everyone definitely um, make sure you go online check them out 
uh, and see, you know, see how you can get involved with, you know, whatever you're doing. And uh, also, you know, keep it simple. Uh, just get outside and, you know, it's, that's where it's all starts. So, uh, Jade, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story and, and really share your passion of what you're doing. Um, and, I, and I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's been lots of fun. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life in motion. Until next time.